Welcome to The Making Of, a Nat Geo podcast. I'm Stacey Wilson-Hunt, and with us today via long-distance technology are three people who have helped to make Life Below Zero Nat Geo's most Emmy-winning reality series of all time. Executive producer Joseph Litzinger, director of photography Michael Cheeseman, and one of the stars of the series, Sue Aikens. Hi, well, thanks for hello. having us. Thanks for having us. Thanks for joining us. We're so, we're so appreciative of your time. So, Sue, I would love to open with you since you're the favorite. No offense, guys. Sue is she is the public facing hero. Of course, she <laughs> is the favorite uh, that fans can't get enough of. So, you know, the last few months have been interesting for for the pretty much all citizens of the earth, and uh, we've all been social distancing for a few months. And yet, Sue, this may seem like old hat to you as someone who has lived in the remote wilderness for many years. So I'd love Social to know. distancing is not really a new thing for most Alaskans. <laughs> <laughs> yes, you had a built-in advantage to this whole uh, experience. But I would love to know, before we talk about the show, what has most appealed to you about this way of life, um, which I think has been going on for about 20 years for you. Is that right? Uh, no, no, I've been... Uh... I've been in Alaska since the 70s, you know, um, you know, uh, I've been in Kavik for a little over 20 years, but I've been in Alaska for far longer. Um, even as an extremely small child, being by myself and in my head was probably the most comfortable place for me. I just kept with that lifestyle. The further out I got, the happier I became. Sue, you know, for someone who lives mostly on her own, you're extremely gregarious and, and very charming. So whatever you're doing to maintain your social <laughs> skills, I have to say you're doing a wonderful job. <laughs> you know, people, I've, I've been asked before, you, people will meet me and they're like, wow, you know, I, I, I thought you hated people, you know, and I said, no, I've never said I hate, I don't want to live next to y'all, but um, I enjoy the time that I spend with people. I'm quite gregarious. Um, I speak several languages. I love to tour the world, hmm. but when I like to have that, that knowledge of when the ending date is and when I can get the hell home, um, that's important to me. Uh, recently I went for a doctor's appointment and the doctor looked at me and said, Hey, don't forget, don't drink or eat anything. And I was like, dude, this is not a date. And he <laughs> said, no, it's surgery seven o'clock in the morning. It was major spinal surgery. And then Corona hit and I spent eight weeks in a hotel room. Mm. So that was, that was about the top end of my comfort zone. Even though it was social distancing, it was a forced issue. But mm. as soon as I got to the cabin, I had a black bear giving me an issue, got him, got my food supply back, back in, and, uh, and life got back to normal. Well, we're so glad you're okay. So <laughs> thank you so much. No, as anything could happen to you on a daily basis, so we're very glad you're secure. So Joe, I'd love to talk to, to you a little bit about this incredible show. And I must say that you just hit a 100-episode milestone, which is rare for any series, let alone a series as as uh, difficult as this one to execute. And the series has even spawned a couple spinoffs, including Life Below Zero Port Protection, which is now airing, and the forthcoming Life Below Zero Next Generation. So I just wanted to mention a little bit about those kudos, which I, I find incredibly compelling. Well, so I must you. say, what would inspire someone like you? You seem like a relatively normal guy in the few moments I've, <laughs> I've had contact with you. What, what would inspire someone to take on a show like this? And how did you go about selecting your subjects to profile? Because Sue, she seems perfect for this, but she's not somebody you're going to run into on the street. So how did you go about just setting this whole thing up? Sure. Uh, I mean, like everything and like this show, uh, it was, you know, a massive team effort. I actually started on this show 
uh, eight years ago as a supervising producer and um, am now the executive producer. The cast was, uh, um, or subjects, including Sue, were, were uh, already chosen when I came on. Um, you know, initially as to why I took it, because it just sounded like an interesting job uh, going to Alaska. And uh, at the time, uh, although, um, you know, the sizzle and, and meeting Sue seemed super interesting, I had no idea that I, uh, what I was in store for and uh, what my life would be for the next eight years, as you mentioned, uh, over 100 episodes and um, two spinoffs. Had you um, been to Alaska before? I hadn't. I've oh, now wow. been over 50-something times, uh, which has been, um, and every time it's just an incredible opportunity that I feel very grateful for, especially now. You know, I sort of in these quarantine times kind of sometimes imagine being in Alaska again. <laughs> Astral projecting there, as we say. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> and, and just tell me a little bit about how you did connect with with the cast in the show, which is such an incredible group of characters. And, and personally, something I love seeing men and women engage in such robust activities with equal measure and fishing and driving heavy machine, machinery and all these things that we really don't get to see men and women performing, especially on television. We just don't see that. How did you connect with these folks? Sure. I mean, for me, I think the connection really started even just getting the job offer. Someone saying that you'll be working for National Geographic and uh, BBC, which to me are those like those are the two biggest names in <laughs> documentary. Kahuna, right? They they are they yeah. are. It's two pretty powerful, um, uh, you know, filmmaking and history behind them. And um, it just even before the job started, it sounded like a dream come true. And then um, sort of initially getting to know the cast and trying to figure out the show, um, uh, you know, sort of meeting them and learning what their life entailed. And, and I think developing trust from the very get-go was important because like Sue mentioned, um, you know, she's lived isolated and alone. And, you know, I think our initial call was like, hey, uh, here we are, some Hollywood people. Can we come live with you? Even though you've chosen to live alone, we want to send four camera crew to live up with you, uh, you know, for, for months at a time. Um, it's been, yeah, a wild ride. It seems like there's a great chemistry, too, and a level of trust between documentarian and subject, that there's a, a healthy distance, but also a respect for their lives and maintaining the flow of normal activities, which I really appreciate. Yeah, thank you. I think so. And, um, you know, we, uh, I've, I've worked on some reality shows before this, shall we say, that was a little more produced. Um, <laughs> I can't imagine. <laughs> um, uh, but this is the, um, you know, sort of most... Um, you know, completely non-produced show. And, uh, you know, we couldn't even if we tried, as you uh, know with <laughs> Sue, would uh, not not let us do anything that's not legitimate and real. And, um, but absolutely, um, you know, we're out there doing things, but we still have to be in, in their face and we still have to ask questions. And why are you doing this? And what does this mean? And it's that level of, of, of trust that, mm. that really, I think, is part of the secret sauce to the show. I think that's true too, Joe, mm. because I think the testament of the time of this show is us bonding with each character and getting to know them and riding that balance of professionalism and, and friendship. And I think if we didn't stay with them and bond with them for so long, I don't think the product would be as good. Uh, and I'm sure Sue can feel the same way because then the, each character, including Sue, gets to trust us and then they get to expose their intimate moments with us without being, you know, upset or shy or anything like that. And it really, really comes out on camera mm. when those vulnerable, vulnerable moments come through 
It's like how many times can you see somebody, you know, go on a caribou hunt or, or, or fix a generator? But what really, I believe, makes this show still interesting after so many years is that trust and that we um, are allowed um, into the character's psyche, which uh, is a very interesting place to be. Hey, guys, you went shopping for crazy. Don't be shocked you found it. You know, and they're not. They're very adept. They've figured out who we are. And the growth as human beings. I mean, over the eight years of filming the show, we've seen the growth of every single cast member from the beginning to now. And especially Sue's whole story arc has just grown and expanded so exponentially that it's very interesting to watch, even as just a documentarian, a filmmaker, just to see her every day and, and watch her life unfold. And just her choices that she makes is, is incredible. And we, we do that with all the cast. It's, it's great. We talk about what we're going to do, what we're going to film. We're going to be there for X amount of time. And, and it makes it sound so freaking organized. And I'm chuckling inside my own head going, until Sue wakes up and here's Ptarmigan chuckling. And I'm running out the door, basically in my long underwear, slamming on a boot going, Ptarmigan! And I'm running down the river and they've got to go, holy sh! she's doing something we didn't plan on. So on that note, Joe, do you ever worry about that window of spontaneity closing over the years as you become closer to your subjects? How do you maintain that sense of, gosh, I don't know what's going to happen today, and, and which for me is what fuels great documentary work? Absolutely. Specifically, I think that intimacy that happens between the cast and the crew is a positive in terms of being able to capture the stories that come up with no notice. You know, uh, maybe Sue can speak to this, but I imagine uh, she's not thinking like, okay, well, you know, how does my hair look? Or it's like, if there's a predator out there, she's just grabbing her gun and running and knowing that the crew will be there uh, and be ready. However, we tell them so much, and, and Mike may can attest to this, that probably I'm tired of hearing it, that the most exciting story is whatever happens in that moment, in that day. And I think the producers and shooters and the entire crew that go out there know that and are always ready. Even when we go to bed at night, we have, me specifically, I have an open walkie. So Sue or whichever cast member I'm with can call me at any time. So even if I'm asleep, yeah. the walkie is right beside me. So if she wakes up, like it happened in the refuge, she's like, cheesy, let's go. Come on. There's a, you know, a, a sheep up on the hill. So then I jump up, camera's already ready, and I'm out the door within, before a minute, and then she's already up and ready to go. So then we're basically rolling within three minutes of me waking up because we're prepared, not because we're like, oh, we haven't had breakfast, we haven't had coffee. It's because we're ready to go because we know that's the show. If it's not a personality I can trust and have comfort with, there's no danger I'm going to invite them into the more intimate, exciting things I want to do. You have a lot of great material to work with, Mike, to say the least. <laughs> we do, yeah. It's pretty easy with Sue. We get the press record, and then she does the rest. <laughs> <laughs> That's a dream for a cinematographer. And on that note, I wanted to ask you, I know you joined in season two, if, if I'm I did, correct. yeah. What most scared you, but also excited you about the challenge of having to shoot, even outside of the logistics of getting there and you know figuring out what you're going to shoot every day, but just the logistics of actually capturing video in this environment? What scared and excited you? I don't think anything really scared me. I've already been in the environment. I did Ice Road Truckers, so I knew how the cold weather was uh, and how, yes, the, okay. how the cameras would ex, you know, uh, operate in those cold conditions. 
the thing that excited me was, and Joe and Travis, I don't know if they remember this, but before they hired me, I had three interviews with them. And the second interview I had with Joe, he called my references right in front of me. And he, I was like, in this moment, these two guys want to make sure that they're getting the right camera crew out there to do the right job. And then they showed me the previous season, and I just was so excited to be a part of a show that took the creativity of making TV and making that a forefront and making it raw and making it real, not producing the scenes, letting things unfold. And from there, I got super excited. And then when they were like, oh, yeah, you're hired. You can go up there. I was I was through the roof. I was so excited. I've done so many shows. And when they allowed me to go up there and 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 help with the talent and, you know, use my talents to make the show, I, I was over the moon. And then once you do a uh, one leg, then you're like, oh my gosh, this is incredible. And then you just kind of get the bug and then you grow and your creativity grows. It, it, it's, it's, it was great. Also, like Mike said, you know, there was obviously an extensive sort of interview process. Not anybody uh, can, can um, you know, leave their their life behind and go live in the middle of Alaska uh, for a couple weeks at a time. And um, it, it uh, the, the men and women who work on this show uh, really are a special breed. Yeah. So I'd love to learn more about the unique logistics involved in making this series. But before that, let's listen to a clip from season seven that highlights just exactly how challenging this process is behind the scenes. It's kind of surreal to be in 10 below zero in the middle of winter in the Arctic and have water issues. You know, we prepare for snow and ice and wind, but uh, you don't expect your tent to flood in the middle of winter. It's, it's really kind of surreal. Lesson learned, I guess. It takes such an effort to get out here that once we do make it out here, we really want to make it work because the logistics are just so daunting. And this place is incredible. It's it's really brutal, beautiful, and wild, and uh, makes for really wonderful television. It's going to take some more work on the part of the crew, but I think we can do it and keep it functioning and get back to filming. Till the next storm. So, Joe, uh, tell us a little bit about some of the intrepid crew members, I know you mentioned a few earlier, um, but how large is your crew and how deeply do you venture into the tundra on a regular basis? Sure. Well, me personally, I typically stay at the downtown Marriott in Anchorage, uh, <laughs> which is not very uh, a deep... <laughs> I don't know why that's funny, but... <laughs> <laughs> how, however, uh, again, it's these um, unique breed of, of men and women that go out into the field. It's, it's usually four of them, uh, which consist of a cinematographer... Uh, or DP, a uh, assistant camera, uh, a producer, and a safety person. Those teams are um, uh, completely independent. Basically, go out in the field, and um, you know we prep, uh, sort of knowing what potentially could happen before we get out there. But really, once they get out there, it's up to them to work with the cast to to see what they're going to do. It's like, we're here for two to three weeks. What are the stories that we want to try to get? And uh, how do we want to accomplish them? And they really are um, self-contained, uh, incredible units. I love that. And Mike, you did hint at your uh, acuity dealing with cold weather and, and its effect on equipment. How does, and as a, I'm a complete layperson when it comes to this question, but how does cold weather impact the actual technology of gathering video? And what precautions do you have to take it? You know, are they wearing cozies? Are these cameras wearing sweaters? <laughs> you know, how are, how are you protecting the technology? And also, how are you transferring all of the, the footage? Do you have a master file that you're carrying with you? How do you manage that piece of it? 
So uh, for the cameras and any of the equipment, it's not built to be in negative temperatures, especially negative 30 on a regular basis, and it hits negative 40, things just go to hell. Um, so we do actually have learned over the years how to keep batteries warm. Sometimes we put them in Pelican cases with a lot of hand warmers, mm. uh, you know, warmed up bottles that have boiling water in them, put them in there that have a seal. Um, we put things in our pocket and our jackets, making sure that batteries stay warm. Wow. So it's sort of like a live organ, you know, being transferred in a, in a cooler. You sort of it have is. to keep it. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Before we even leave the tents, the AC basically gets all the batteries that we're going to use. Every single camera, we have so many cameras, put them in one Pelican case, which then weighs 50 pounds. And we have to tote that around on snow machines or, you know, in our backpacks or whatever. I'm actually surprised that we're able to film the show in these temperatures because we, this past January, we were up there filming. It was negative 40, and every piece of equipment was failing. I couldn't fly my drone. All the GoPros were going down. The main principal Canon cameras were barely turning on, and we couldn't keep batteries charged. And somehow we ended up getting the scene. And, Mike, there's certain temperatures, right, that it's so cold that the LCD screens freeze, so you literally are shooting blind. Yeah, so basically I've learned over the years how cold it is just by how the camera's performing. So I could basically pull the camera out within five minutes. I could be like, okay, it's around 10, you know, minus 10. Okay, now it's <laughs> minus 20. Now it's minus 30. Now it's minus 40 because of the camera. And when it hits minus 30 to minus 40, we have an LCD screen that we watch, you know, our, our video on, and that goes out completely. And so then we have to use the viewfinder. And the worst part about that is if you then breathe into the viewfinder, it freezes up. So then you have to scrape it and you really can't see anything. So you're basically shooting blind. So it's, it's just ups and downs all the time. I'm very, very surprised that we can film what we do. It's a great group of people. We wow. push through it. So, Sue, I would love to know, you know, this isn't a natural skill set for anyone, let alone someone who lives in the conditions in which you live, to allow yourself to be filmed and documented in this way. And it seems like you have a great sense of keeping things casual and keeping things organic. But how do you maintain that distance while also acknowledging I'm in the middle of nowhere with these people? I'm trying to go about my regular life, but everything I'm doing is being documented. What, what is the psychology of that exchange? You, you pointed out that uh, I'm in the middle of nowhere, and I'm going to say, nope, that's about 300 miles south. I'm at the, I'm at the top. Hmm. Mike and Joe had talked about the relationship that they have with us, the talent. And it's been seven, eight years, and we have become friends. That makes it easier to have a cohesive relationship. Uh, I think that if anybody tried to immerse themselves in my life and came in saying, okay, now you're going to go over here and I'm going to do this, it would be a really, really short segment that I would wish them a whole lot of luck and lock the door behind them and throw away the key. So switching gears a little bit, because it's something that we all have to do all day long in our lives, food. I would love to know what is the most adventurous thing that you've been forced to eat while out shooting. And Sue, what have you delighted in seeing the guys have to eat that you saw was not a pleasant experience for them? There are some unusual things um, that, you know, I when I cook something, I always offer, because that's just being polite, uh, Wolverine, for example. 
Um, Wolverine is uh, the Muscadet family, and they can have a smell that you won't soon forget. But um, when you get it, that smell is amazing. It's uh, Skunks have it too, but there's a way of removing that scent, soaking things, taking some time, some hours, 24 hours, and getting that oil away from it and then cooking it, and it's a pretty good product. I think, Mike, you were there when I did that. I did. I ate the Wolverine. and, and What does it, it taste like? It wasn't as bad as I thought it would be, but I think because I just filmed the scene and I knew what it smelled like, it was hard to get that that idea of what it smelled like out of my head. But Sue did a good job cooking it up, and it was it was tasty if I didn't know what the animal smelled like before. <laughs> so what is the smell of skunk, that, that skunk smell that we're used to? Yeah, it's like a musty, skunky smell. It's pretty intense. Yeah. yeah. We gave it's it, pretty intense. Uh, it's about 24 hours and three different processes to get the oils out. Yeah. But... Uh, well, if oh. Sue says it's intense, it must be intense. It was. It is. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I would love to continue to talk a little bit more about Sue's work and all the perilous tasks that she undertakes. Um, before that, I do want to cue another clip. This is from um, season seven, and it shows Sue transporting a generator and the strategizing involved in getting it from one place to another during very difficult times. So let's uh, listen to that. This is it. This is the moment of truth. Kavik is overland about 87 and a half, 88 miles that way. So that's where I've got to go. There are no roads. I have a few waypoints on my GPS. Go about 70 miles, turn right. If I, you know, hit the mountains, I've gone too far, back up a little bit. I've driven one before, but I haven't driven at 100 miles over the tundra in a blizzard. There's always time for something new in life. Like I said before, Nobody tells me I can't until I say it. I love that. Those machines can fall through the ice at any point. You don't know how deep the water is below you. So there is that adrenaline rush to go forward into the unknown. And then there's that adrenaline rush that says, I don't know what's going to happen. Have you lost your mind? So I think I mentioned this earlier, sort of how heartening and inspiring it is to see a woman existing in this environment and, and, and thriving, really. And I think that's the better word. What does it mean to you that you are now a bit of an icon? I would say not even a bit. You are an icon to people all over the world who may not have understood how much power and how much confidence they have to exist and survive in this environment and also just to make a great life out of it. What does it mean to you that people look to you now as being a model for that? To be honest, I, I don't really look at myself that way. Um, I think you really need to be careful of putting yourself on a pedestal because sooner or later when you fall off, skin, knees, and a busted neck hurt. Um, so does a bruised ego. There is a, a good amount of satisfaction, personal happiness and satisfaction that you can get taking this big piece of machinery across the tundra there's pride there there's an accomplishment there now if somebody a young lady growing up if they can get something out of that and even if it's something as simple as getting to school and not being bullied 
or fixing something that they didn't think they could, that's a hell of a good thing. I agree. That's really wonderful. Thank you. Mm-hmm. So, Mike, you have an interesting background in having shot skateboard videos, which is I did. I, which which I love well, only because my husband talks about skateboarding nonstop. So, <laughs> by the virtue of my proximity to him, I've had to hear a lot about these over the years. Oh. <laughs> but I would love to know how that training specifically has informed your ability to c- cleverly place GoPros and drones and think outside the box in terms of capturing a moment that the rest of us may not even know is possible. Is there a moment where you're like, okay, I cannot believe I got that. And it's sort of, you think back, okay, I was able to do that because 20 years ago, I set that, <laughs> I lit that, you know, that skateboard on fire going down the steps or <laughs> whatever I think, it was. I think for me, it's like, uh, when I first started making skate videos, uh, I was just, you know, an ambitious teenager. I was 15 years old. I started making videos. I started selling them around, you know, the tri-state area. We made a few of them, uh, that became a little bit successful, but I think it didn't teach me how to to shoot reality TV or docu-series TV. It taught me how to find the shots that are worth telling a story. So when you're filming a skateboarding, uh, a skateboarder going down a, a set of steps, you got to find the shot that really shows what they're doing. When you're doing Life Below Zero, you're thinking so quickly, and you have to know the shot has to be right the first time because you're not going to ask Sue to go get stuck in that ice again. I know... 10 steps ahead before it's going to happen. And I think that's just training over the years of doing the show and doing other shows, knowing what the shot is going to be to tell the story the best. You know, to give Cheeseman and the other DPs and and producers and everyone else out there even more kudos than he's willing to give himself. Um, You know, I think uh, I've been fortunate enough to sit in the edit bay for all these footage. And even now, even after eight years, We'll be watching, and we'll we the the you know um, post team as well myself will be like, how did they get that shot? Uh, and um, you know, it still continues to to amaze me. Um, like you say, uh, in terms of sort of skateboard videos, or just each person going out there. Uh, you know, each of the crew members has a different background, uh, skateboarding videos or reality TV or or whatever that is, and they each bring that to bring unique camera angles uh, that the other one may or may not, you know, have gotten had they been there. Um, And it's really that sort of diverse uh, background that you mentioned is uh, interesting to talking about skateboarding videos. Uh, What a wonderful question. Um, (laughs) That it's those kinds of backgrounds that that really um, continue to sort of push the envelope in terms of what they can get. So when we see those skaters, we don't want to think they're punks. They're really just preparing for a career in in cinematography when we see them doing their thing. I... Stacy, I think I'm a rare breed. I think uh, there probably are a lot of skate punks out there, and that's why there's a bad reputation. But I was the the, the straight-A kid that nerded out about editing my skate videos in my parents' basement, and it really pointed me in the right direction of what I wanted to do with my life. And that, that being said, there does seem to be that trend um, from a lot of our uh, DPs and producers that go out there that have those kinds of... I don't know if you consider skateboarding extreme, but uh, extreme backgrounds from skateboarding to, you know, we have um, a DP who's climbed Everest a couple times uh, to a lot of our DPs also do snowboarding videos, that there's something about that adventurous spirit that calls people, calls crew to this show. So I'd love to talk about something that is incredibly important to the show, but also to all of our lives as well. It's climate change. And the series shows us firsthand 
how climate change is impacting its subjects' abilities to work, access food, and survive. In what ways have you had to adapt to changing temperatures, water flow, and animal activity in the course of the series? And Sue, I would love to know how your daily life has been impacted by climate change over the last few years. So maybe start with Joe. Um, well, I, you know, I, I can speak to sort of what uh, we've noticed over the last eight years in Alaska, and obviously Sue will be able to speak to what she's noticed living uh, there. It's just that, um, you know, we used to be able to, at least for the first couple of years, count on certain times of the year to be able to go out and film. You know, break up occurs at this time, freeze up occurs at this time, and kind of plan around that, give or take, you know, two or three weeks. We have noticed in the last couple of years that that's been completely thrown out the window um, and that sort of planning on anything, uh, including animal migration uh, or, like I said, rivers breaking up uh, is, is quite impossible. Um, you know, on one hand, it's definitely kept us on our toes and kept the show uh, unique and, and fresh. And of course, on the other hand, it's, you know, sad. Interesting. And how about Sue? Would on a daily basis, and as you go through the, your day to day, acquiring food, doing your tasks for your job, how has climate change impacted those activities? Um, you know, the climate change uh, it affects greatly uh, the amount of snow I'm getting um, up in the high Arctic. It's technically uh, classified a desert an Arctic desert up there. And it used to be eight inches of precipitation a year, no matter what form it takes, rain, snow, it's eight inches. And uh, this year, you know, there's just a tremendous amount of snow, tremendous amounts of rain uh, the last few years, well over, well over feet of precipitation coming in. Um, That changes the landscape, it changes the vegetation, it changes the rivers, the fish, the animals that can get through. Uh, caribou don't enjoy, they're not, they're built for the cold weather, they're not built for the deep snow. Um, it changes their migration routes, it changes the, uh, the, the ability for the uh, baby caribou to thrive. Um, I used to have literally millions and millions of geese and ducks that would come and land in the ponds not so much anymore. Um, there are maybe thousands. The, the glaciers are melting. Other ones are growing. There is so much change happening, and it's happening so rapidly. Is it more difficult to find food and hunt for food where I'm at? Absolutely. Some of the hunting rules, some of the species, I think that we need to shut down hunting altogether on some of them, let the numbers build. Does that make does that make subsistence harder? Absolutely. But that's the way it is. All species have a right to thrive. And on that note, uh, I, there was a beautiful voiceover, Rico. Am I pronouncing his name correctly? Rico mm-hmm. DeWild. Mm-hmm. Um, he says in a voiceover in um, episode eleven of season seven, he says, "Quote: If you go out and disrespect the land and the animals, you're basically disrespecting yourself." And I thought about that a lot over the, the last few days. How do all of you see that sentiment and that statement as an embodiment of the series mission at large? And what do you hope people are learning from this show as there are some distressing themes that emerge based on what Sue has just described? This isn't just 
an escapist form of entertainment. This is watching the world change before our eyes. Sure. Um, you know, I mean, yeah, it is a very powerful thing. And I think uh, Rico, as well as the rest of the cast, connection to the land, I think is a, is a valuable lesson for everyone. And I can say, speaking for myself as, um, you know, the showrunner, but obviously also as a fan of the show, I've seen a lot of it over the years. And it's really made me appreciate more where my food comes from, um, uh, how uh, valuable and, and, and interconnected everything is. You know, it's like we see Sue talk about, or any of the cast talking about like, oh, this year I need to get this food, but I have to wait until breakup. Uh, you know, I think about like, okay, I just have to go to the, well, not anymore, I guess, but, but before <laughs> the quarantine at least. Now, right? <laughs> yes. It, it before is. February. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Uh, you know, I just get into my car and um, go to the grocery store and there's a, you know, a package of, of, of meat. And I think about what it takes for, for these guys, you know, some and, and girls, of course, uh, to, to, to be able to get food for themselves, uh, you know, uh, a hunt, um, could take weeks, um, all day, every day, every morning, every night, um, and, you know, putting yourself in danger. Um, and it's really made me appreciate where my food comes from in a way that I never did before this show. That's actually a really important point you're making. So Mike, did you gather enough footage from your last trip to Alaska that you're then able to work on the next season? And sort of in this case, do you see this series as being so-called pandemic proof in the sense that you can work on it virtually. I mean, I think we're hopeful that the show will continue to film sooner rather than later. Um, I think it will eventually come back. I think we have a, a, a leg up in the fact that our show is very isolated. So we get to be away from a lot of people. Um, so that gives us the opportunity to get out there and film a lot of episodes. As of right now, uh, the crews are shut down. We're not filming. Obviously, everything's just going through post. So we aren't working. We're all at home, spending time with family and just trying to deal with what we can and staying healthy and safe. Um, so I think we probably have, I don't know how many more episodes, Joe, probably nine, eight more, whatever we have to do for the rest of the season. So we're pretty backed up. Um, but we're hoping that since our show is so isolated that we're able to get out there sooner rather than later. Yeah, just like Cheeseman was saying, I mean, obviously that uh, we all want to get uh, back there, like the world wants to get back. Um, but of course, National Geographic uh, and Disney and BBC uh, take safety, uh, you know, it's above all else. And of course, we are all very eager uh, to get out there. Um, you know, I do know, though, once we do get the green light from them, that uh, our show is unique in that we do film extremely isolated, not just from, um, you know, the cast, but from each other in terms of camping, in terms of being in the middle of nowhere, but of course, following all uh, state and federal guidelines and um, keeping the crew safety first and foremost would determine when we can go back out there. But fingers crossed that it's really soon. Yes, for sure. Fingers crossed for all of us. And actually on the subject of isolation, Joe and Mike, I would love to know, what have you learned about the psychology of isolation? For making this series? And specifically, what have you learned from your subjects and the way that they survive and thrive in the wilderness? How have these lessons helped you cope during this global sheltering in place? Um, you know, <laughs> what I can say is when we first started filming this show, I know, uh, you know, Sue was living what she calls a Twinkie, which is basically this trailer isolated by herself. And, and we'd have extensive discussions about how we're going to get crew out there and, and how long they could stay. And she introduced this term that I hadn't heard before, which is called going bushy. 
which means like, uh, you know, sort of you're out in the bush, you're out there and, 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 and you kind of, you know, go a little uh, stir crazy and I'm like, sure, sure, sure. However, I will say over the last eight years, we've noticed that that, that's, that legitimately happens. And, and you know, um, the crew that goes out there, they are extremely tough. But, but even for them, there's a limit for how long you can be isolated and contained. And we found that to be about, you know, four weeks. And uh, when we were hitting this, this mark with this quarantine, you know, I was talking to my wife and I was saying, okay, we're hitting that going bushy limit. This is when the crew starts to call and says, like, get me out of here. Oh, or yeah. the cast is like, get these guys out of here. Uh, but here we are. We're, we're all you know, again, um, in our homes. It's not as extreme as being in the middle of Alaska, but we're all hitting that going bushy quarantine time. I think a lot of us have tried to be very, oh, you know, I, I'm lucky, I'm fortunate, I'm eating, I'm sheltered, but there is still an element of this isn't normal. This isn't what we're used to. We need interaction. We need schedule. We need a routine. So I think just the acknowledgement of the bush, the bushiness, <laughs> I think is is healthy. I think it's great because like when we're up there with them, we get to live in their lives. Everything that they have, everything that they eat, they work hard for. They, they've done it with their own hands. When we live in Los Angeles, you know, it's sunny all the time. And I, you know, build a small little shed for my garbage cans. That's about it. But they're building houses, you know, they're building saunas. They're building all these cool things that they're doing all on their own. And it's powerful and very inspiring to watch them. And then finally, Sue, I would love to know, I know you don't like to put yourself on a pedestal and you seem very, you know, you're extremely humble, but what have you learned about yourself doing this series? How has it, how have you surprised yourself along the way? Aging gracefully is not as easy as I thought it would be. You know, when I first got to Kavik, I was in my late thirties and now I'm only a couple of, couple of fingers away from 60 the body breaks down, but the mind definitely is sharp as a freaking tack. So the wheels are turning, and I'm building things in my head to accommodate a body that's definitely getting older. So Joe and Mike, I really hope you guys get up there, because <laughs> there's some things that are coming out of my head that are just, wow. This is, you know, Da Vinci's type stuff. I don't know. Uh, we grow, we change, we, as we get older, I see myself in a different light, but it's also helped me see everybody else in a different light and acknowledge a little deeper that we're all in this together, but we are definitely differently shaped puzzle pieces that put together make up a whole planet. Well, that is a lovely closing thought, Sue, and very wise as usual. So thank you so much for that. Thank you, Stacy, for doing thank this. You. Yeah, thank you, Stacy. Thank you, guys. For more information on Joseph Litzinger, Michael Cheeseman, and Sue Akins from Life Below Zero, please visit natgeotv.com slash FYC. I'm Stacy Wilson-Hunt. Thank you for listening. The Making of, a Nat Geo podcast, is a National Geographic production. Executive produced by Stephanie Montgomery and Chris Alpert. Hosted by Stacey Wilson-Hunt. Written and produced by Dave Beesing, Ted Woods, Jason Jackson, Kevin Horton, and Stacey Wilson-Hunt. Production coordinator, Juliana Parisi. And in association with Benstown, McVeigh Media, and Sound That Brands. <laughs>